Hi, everyone. I'm so glad that you've joined us for the launch of this brand new teaching series today. I want you to imagine a scene with me for a moment. It's a Saturday morning. You're taking a walk down the street or the sidewalk near where you live. And all of a sudden, a camera crew comes running up to you for a, a spontaneous interview. So, to your surprise, the question has nothing to do with your favorite political candidate or the hot button local issue. The interviewer simply asks you this question. Who is Jesus? And as you're fumbling for an answer, like you're not, your outfit is not exactly camera ready and, and you're now being quizzed on theology while your workout buddy watches on awkwardly, what do you say? Who is Jesus? A good man, a son of God, a prophet, a Galilean rabbi, a teacher, a preacher, a healer, a snake oil salesman, the, the embodiment of God's love, a, a first century wise man, an ancient mythical figure like Zeus, the founder of a religion. What do you say? And I think if I asked that question today, the answers would be all over the map. Heck, Jesus asked his own followers, who do people say that I am? And his own disciples came up with four different answers. I would propose that between the time you're born and the time you die, your answer to that question is the most important thing for you to figure out. Because while Jesus is the most important person to ever live, he's also the most misunderstood. Think about it. Of, of all the people in history, a total of over 100 billion people now have lived and breathed on this planet. Only a handful have ever made a mark that changed the course of it. And only one really stands head and shoulders above the rest. It's Jesus. More attention has been given to him, more devotion, more criticism, more adoration, more opposition has been given to this one person than all the others. Every recorded word that he has ever said has been sifted and analyzed and scrutinized and debated, every single word, more than all the historians and philosophers and scientists, all the rest of them put together. I mean, he was here 2,000 years ago, and after 2,000 years, there is never one minute on this earth that millions of people are not studying what he said. Think about it. Here's a person who lived in just a minuscule, tiny little land two millennia ago, and yet his birth divides the centuries, A.D., B.C., the, the, the year of our Lord. He never wrote a book, and yet libraries could be filled with the volumes that have been written about the Lord Jesus. He never painted a picture, so far as we know. Yet the world's greatest art, the world's greatest theater, the world's greatest music, the, the greatest literature uh, has been about Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus never raised an army, and yet he multiplied you know, millions of followers, and, and millions of people have died in his name. He never traveled very far from his birthplace, and yet his testimony has gone around and around and around the world. He only had a handful of no-name followers, and yet today, over 30% of the world's population name his name. Christians, the largest such grouping on earth. Jesus of Nazareth. The second largest religion, by the way, Islam, also views Jesus as one of their key prophets of the faith. Most people regard Jesus as one of the greatest human beings who ever lived. But this remarkable consensus begs the question, why are there so many conflicting interpretations of Jesus? Well, because we're selfish and sinful, everyone wants Jesus on their side. And they're willing to recreate him in their image to enlist his support. Animal rights activists imagine a vegan Jesus. New Agers make him an example of finding, you know, the God within. Radical feminists neuter him so he doesn't appear too sexist. Like, it's hard to escape the sense that our culture has taken Jesus, the Jesus question, who do you say that I am? And we have him asking, who do you want me to be? And so it couldn't be a more important time for us to explore the question, who is Jesus Christ, and to seek accurate and honest answers. And a related question, by the way, this one has a little bit more personal. 
Why do you believe in him? Is it because your grandma did? Is it because your political party told you to? Is it because you needed help during a desperate time and you were drawn to a version of Jesus that comforted you? Why is it? And I hope that you'll get some answers to those questions as we work through this series together. There's a lot of ways to study Jesus. Like you can trace, you know, his teachings. You can look at his lifestyle. You can follow his miracles. You can follow his parables. But from now until Christmas, we're going to take a more theological approach. We're going to look at Christology. So what is Christology? Well, Christology is the study of the person and work of Jesus. And it's an important endeavor for Christians because he's the central figure of our faith. And, and, and we want to try to know Jesus intimately, but you can't know Jesus intimately until you know him accurately, not just some version of him that you made up in your mind. You see, what you believe about Jesus will impact the trajectory of your life. It will greatly affect your idea of salvation and, and discipleship. And if the goal of the Christian life is to become more and more like Jesus, well, then we better know who this Jesus is. And so we're going to look at Christology, the study of Jesus. The title of this series is Deconstructing Jesus. So let me just say a brief word about deconstruction. So, so generally, deconstruction just means breaking something down into its most basic parts. And so you could go to a fancy restaurant and get a deconstructed, you know, beef wellington. It would be all the components of a beef wellington just presented in a more kind of basic way. And there's deconstruction in art, where traditional parts and pieces are taken out and put back in in unusual ways. And, and, and architecture, where traditional shapes are either used in a different way or disregarded altogether. And this concept of deconstruction are all originated as a philosophical movement associated with Jacques Derrida, who said that every philosophical idea consists of, of, of prevailing thoughts and opposing thoughts. And when it comes to things like literature or logic or even religion, that these tensions and these contradictions should be explored and in many cases disrupted and overturned. Now, I'm way oversimplifying here, but, but you may have heard of Christians deconstructing their faith. It's, it's not the term that I would have used at the time, but looking back, it's a similar process that I went through in my late teens and early 20s. So, so with Christians, deconstruction means critiquing deeply held beliefs of, of your faith. So often it's people who are coming out of a difficult or, or dysfunctional church experience, for example. And it requires this untangling of ideas and practices that a per person's faith was built on, maybe from their family of origin or from their church environment. And then kind of fettering out uh, all the unhealthy stuff that, that turns out not to be true or, or valid and throwing that out, the bad stuff, and then keeping the good stuff and then putting your faith back together as a healthier and truer expression. Now, at face value, I think this is a healthy and necessary process for Christians to go through. But for some, this word deconstruction has been used synonymously with uh, abandoning your faith or renouncing your Christianity. And that's not the same thing. Abandoning your faith is what the Bible calls apostasy. And I would urge you to avoid that at all costs. But in deconstructing, you're admitting that some parts of your beliefs and experiences may need evaluation and they may need adjustment or even severing altogether to get to a purer expression of your Christian faith. And so what does it mean that we're calling this series Deconstructing Jesus? Well, it means that we're going to break down and, and, and maybe even take apart our knowledge of who Jesus is down to the basic building blocks and then look at them and spin them around and, and keep the true parts and throw out the false parts and hopefully arrive at a clearer and more brilliant picture of who Jesus Christ is. And then adjust our understanding of him and our posture toward him accordingly. And so today we begin with the first building block. It's this idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It is one of the cornerstone doctrines of Christianity. 
If you look closely, there are references to this truth all throughout the New Testament. But I want you to look at how Paul states it in his introduction in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul says this. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning, listen, his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we see here in this passage the, the two different natures of Jesus, God and man. Paul tells us that, that the good news that he was born to proclaim is about Jesus, who though he's descended from David, you caught that, he's also the Son of God. And Paul is confirming here that Jesus Christ is God and man. Jesus has two natures. Notice Paul very carefully. He doesn't present these natures as perfectly symmetrical. He doesn't say that he became human and he became divine. He says, according to the flesh, he became a son of David. But according to the spirit of holiness, he was declared to be the son of God. And so before he was born into the world, he was already a son of God. He already existed as God. He didn't become the son of God. He was the son of God. But he became the son of David. This is a very important distinction. It's one of the reasons that you should become familiar with the Athanasian Creed. It puts this concept perfectly as it says, our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect God and perfect man, not by conversion of the Godhead into the flesh, but by the taking up of the humanity into God. So he was already the son of God and he became also a man. Now, speaking of creeds, we're going to be using some theological terms during this series and referencing some creeds and, and the like. Over at our page, webpage at whoisgrace.com forward slash read, we just have some great resources for you as we walk through this series together. There's a little Christology dictionary there that our team put together as well as just loads of other supporting materials. But most of these early creeds, they were created by councils, church councils that would come together uh, from all over the place to correct false teaching that had crept into the church. And much of of these early false teachings had to do with this topic, who is Jesus? And there were three major false teachings about Jesus that the early church had to reject. The first was called docetism. It suggested that Jesus wasn't actually human, but he was a, a celestial be being that, that, that only appeared to have a physical body. So they were denying the humanity of Jesus. The second false teaching was called Nestorianism. The, the Nestorians suggested that Christ existed as two persons sharing one body, like his divine and his human natures are completely distinct and separate, and that those two natures never commingled inside Jesus, making him a bit of a freak that would be hard to relate to. And then there was Arianism uh, that held to the idea that Jesus was a finite created being with some divine attributes, but he was not eternal, he was not divine, he was not God. In other words, God created Jesus as a part of his creation, so, so Jesus couldn't be equal to God. So while docetism denies Jesus' humanity, Arianism de denies Jesus' divinity. And you can see that over the centuries, and, and starting at the very beginning, people have gotten off track uh, by taking an imbalanced approach to who Jesus was. This is very important. And these false ideas are called heresies. And many of the creeds were written to address heresies about their view of Jesus. And so today I want us to look at how Jesus is fully God and fully man. And I just want to present you with evidence for both of those claims. Here's my big idea today. Jesus is fully God and fully man in order for your salvation to be complete. I'll come back to that. 
But let's start with the first that just says Jesus is fully God. You know, I've had conversations with skeptics that have said Christians invented this idea of Jesus as God. In fact, they say Jesus didn't even think he was God. Why do you Christians try to take it so far? He knew that he was just a man. He knew that he was just a prophet. This whole making Jesus into some divine being was the invention of the church to try to add some credibility to their movement. Again, I can't present all the biblical evidence in this short time that I have today, but let me suggest that Jesus was fully God by looking at two things, his divine claims and his divine demonstrations. So let's start with the divine claims. Jesus claimed to be God. In the passage we read earlier in Romans 1, we get this clue that, that, that Paul is affirming that Jesus didn't become the Son of God. He had always been the Son of God. He wasn't created, but he existed from eternity past, long before he was born of Mary, long before what we call the incarnation, God made flesh. This is important because if he didn't exist eternally, there's no way that he could be considered God. But the Bible is clear that Jesus pre-existed creation as God. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. Later in John 17, here's the claim. Jesus says in his own words, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So, so Jesus is claiming pre-existence, and I won't take you through every reference, but trust me when I say, the Bible reaffirms the pre-existence of Jesus again and again. Now, next is the I am statements that Jesus made in John. You know, we've studied these uh, here at Grace over the past couple years. When Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am, I am, I am. Each of these was a claim of divinity because I am was the name God had assigned to himself in the Old Testament. And so in John 8, 56 to 58, Jesus got overt with it. And he just said, before Abraham was, I am. What's he doing? He's assigning God's special and holy name to himself, Jesus. And people knew exactly what he was doing. Because when he said it, they tried to execute him. It was a crime punishable by death to claim to be God. And that's what Jesus was doing. He also forthrightly claimed equality with God. Over and over again, he said the phrase, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He said it in a bunch of places. And, and when he talked about things like the end of the world, he, he declared that he would be there. Like that, that he himself would consummate history and judge the world as God. And then in John 10, 30, again, in his own words, his own claim, Jesus left no room for interpretation when he said, I and the Father are one. I'll take you to one more passage where Jesus adds some texture to this, that just in case someone is still thinking, well, I'm not convinced Jesus ever claimed to be God. So over in John 14, 7 to 9, Jesus is talking to Philip, and he says these words to Philip. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so th this is really a lot, but let me simplify. Jesus says, look at me. Look at my life, look at my personality, look at my decisions, and I am revealing to you all of the nature and the character of God. 
that, that it's possible for a human being to see and to know who God is if you see me. And he says, and if you don't see it, then look at the works themselves, which leads to the second thing that I want you to see, the divine demonstrations. Not only did Jesus claim to be God, but he also proved it. And so just let's look at the qualities that are normally attributed only to God and see how Jesus demonstrated those qualities. So what about omnipotence, which means all-powerful? Think about the demonstrations of Jesus' power over all kinds of things. So over nature, for example, when he stilled the storm with a word. Think about his power over everyday objects like food when he multiplied the loaves and fish. And over substances when he turned the water into wine. Or his power over the human body, doing what no scientist or doctor before or since has ever been able to do, as he rewired the body to make people who had been blind their whole life see, and lame people walk, and dead people come to life again. So Jesus showed that he was omnipotent. But what about omniscience, which means all-knowing? Jesus also demonstrated the ability to know people's thoughts. So Mark 2.8 says, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had questioned, listen, within themselves. And so he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Notice it didn't come out of their mouths. He's, he's reading their minds. And so there are plenty of other examples like this. But there's also omnipresence, which is the divine ability to not be bound by time or space. And most of these references that Jesus makes were forward-looking. But he began to promise things like, he, he said, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And he said multiple times to his disciples, I will be with you always. Or how about the biggie? Immortality, which is the inability to die. I love that definition. Jesus said to the religious leaders, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And then we get this little interpretive phrase in the Bible that I love so much. It says, he was speaking of his body. Or, or he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I have authority to take it up again. And then he did what he said. There's an empty tomb over in the Middle East where his body used to be. He's no longer there. And so because of all these things, the Bible is clear that Jesus is worthy of our worship because he's divine. He's God. He claimed to be God with divine claims, and then he proved it with divine demonstrations. And just like the disciples did when he calmed the storms or did some great miracle where they, they, they fell down and worshiped him as God, the, the Bible says that that day is coming for all of us. That we will all see it one day, no matter what you believe right now, that the day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is divine. And so Jesus is fully God. But in Philippians 2, right before that section that says every knee will bow and every tongue confess, that very same chapter talks about how Jesus is not just fully God, but he also became fully man. I want you to look at Philippians 2. Uh, verses 5 through 8 says these words, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, there's his divinity, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So did you catch that? This passage describes what Jesus did. He was in the form of God. That's his divinity. But he emptied himself and he was born in the form of man. That's his humanity. And not just any man, but a servant who went to the cross. 
There's another theological term. It's called kenosis. And it refers to the doctrine of Christ's self-emptying in his incarnation that we see in this passage. Now, verse 7 doesn't specify what exactly Jesus emptied himself of. And we have to be very careful not to go beyond what the scripture says. We just learned that he didn't empty himself of, of all of his divine attributes. He was still using some of those after he took on flesh. And so he didn't cease to be God. He didn't become a lesser God. So, so whatever this emptying entailed, Jesus remained fully God in the process. In fact, Paul would say it this way in Colossians 2.9. It says, in him, that is Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so he is fully God. So what is the emptying all about? Well, I think it's best to think of it as Jesus laying aside all of the privileges that were his in heaven. Rather than stay on his throne in heaven, Jesus, it says in the NIV, made himself nothing, or the New Living Translation. He gave up his divine privileges. He veiled his glory. He chose to occupy the position of a servant. Jesus didn't exchange deity for humanity when he came to earth. That's not what happened. Instead, he set aside the privileges of heaven so that in addition to being fully God, we get to our second point. Jesus is fully man. Now, this journey of Jesus' humanity centers in, in, in another controversial idea. We're just hitting all of them today. That is the virgin birth. The doctrine of the virgin birth is critical to this idea that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And the Bible writers trip all over themselves to make sure that this is clear. The virgin birth states that when Mary conceived Jesus, she had never had sexual intercourse. The angel, when he breaks the news to Mary's husband, Joseph, he explains it this way. He says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so the birth of Jesus was miraculous. That's clear. But it's also the fulfillment of prophecies about the Messiah, which we'll cover in the coming weeks. Again, this idea of the virgin birth is important for a variety of reasons, but for today, it preserves the truth of this idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. His physical body he received from Mary, his mother. His eternal holy nature was his that he maintained from eternity past, but that he received from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph the carpenter did not pass on his sinful nature to Jesus for the simple reason that Joseph was not the father, which means Jesus had no sin nature. There's no other way to kind of unite deity and humanity so clearly as this doctrine. Now, God could have made, he could have done it different ways. He, he could have made Jesus in, as a human in heaven and then delivered him to earth without involving Mary. But, but we wouldn't have understood how Jesus is fully human as we are. God could have also just had two human parents conceive Jesus. And then when he's born, kind of sprinkle heavenly dust on him and make him divine. But then we would have strained to see him as God. But even without Joseph's involvement, you may ask, well, wouldn't, wouldn't Mary still pass on a sin nature to Jesus? And the Catholic doctrine would, would solve this by saying that Mary, Mary herself was sinless. Now, I'm not trying to pick a fight here, but, but we find this idea nowhere in Scripture. Also, if Mary was sinless, how did she not receive sin nature from her mom and dad? And if they were sinless, how did they not receive it from theirs? And on and on it goes. A better solution is that the Holy Spirit prevented not only the transmission of sin from a human father, but miraculously prevented it from Mary as well. We get a clue in Luke 135. Uh, the angel this time to Mary says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So the spirit overshadowed something in Mary that the child could be born, you saw there, holy. 
I think her sin was prevented from being passed to Jesus. And my point is, not only is Jesus fully God, but he's also fully man. And just like we looked at, at examples of some of the divine attributes that Jesus possessed, I want to look quickly at some of the human attributes. The most obvious is that he had a human body. So Luke describes Jesus' childhood by saying that he grew in wisdom and stature. And so his body grew like a normal body grows. We also know that Jesus was limited by his body in some of the same ways that we are. We read again and again that Jesus became tired. How many of you know that Jesus was a frequent napper? That's good news for some of you, to know that you serve a napping Savior. We, we also read that Jesus became thirsty, that, that he was hungry. There were times when he was physically weak, and so Jesus experienced the limitations of a human body. We also know that he had a human mind. So Luke 5.52 says that he increased in wisdom. His mind developed. He learned things. He learned how to talk. He learned how to read. He learned how to write. Hebrews 5 said that he learned how to be obedient to his parents. It's fascinating to think about. Jesus also possessed human emotions. And so he, he did things like he marveled at the centurion's faith. He wept for his friend Lazarus. He wept over the people of Jerusalem. He prayed with loud cries and tears. He was frustrated at times. He was angry at times. So he had these emotions. It's important to note also that people saw his humanity. So, so people would come to Jesus and they would say things like, isn't this the carpenter's son? And so there's no sense that he was like levitating from town to town with a halo over his head. He was fully a person. Yet he was different in one very important way. He, he was sinless. He faced every temptation that you and I face, but he remained sinless. Satan tried his best for 40 days, but was unable to, to make Jesus crack. Jesus said to the religious leaders one time, who of you convicts me of sin? Even at the end of his life, Pontius Pilate could find no wrong to convict him of. And so Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. But there are a couple of big questions that remain. One is, how can someone live with two natures in one person? And this is a practical question. And the early church struggled with this idea. And we do too. I mean, and there are a lot of opinions. But again and again, the church came back to affirming this mystery. That Jesus wasn't dual-minded. Jesus wasn't bipolar. But the entirety of God and the fullness of humanity dwelt together in Christ. The technical term is a hypostatic union, the uniting of Christ's human and divine natures in one being. I would encourage you to look up the Chalcedonian Creed from AD 451. It has been the standard, it continues to be, uh, the orthodox definition of the biblical teaching on this subject for Catholics, for Protestants, and for Orthodox Christians. And in layman's terms, it says this, that Christ's deity did not make his humanity superhuman and his humanity did not make his deity diminished. The full essence of both the deity and humanity dwelt in Jesus Christ. He is the God-man sent from the Father to save us from our sins. Now, the second question may be more pressing to you. And the question is, who cares? <laughs> so what? Let me ask it more respectfully. Why is this important? Why get so caught up in trying to establish that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Why were there councils and creeds all through history to settle this issue? And on the positive way to ask it, why should this doctrine give Christians such hope and confidence? Let me answer it this way. If Jesus is God and God alone, then you have no salvation. And if Jesus is man and man alone, then you have no salvation. You and I only have salvation if he is both God and man. Why? Well, his divinity is important because only someone 
who is infinite God, could bear the full penalty for all the sins of humanity. No one ordinary human being could ever save mankind. Only God could. But on the other hand, his humanity is crucial because if he had not been a man, he could not have died in our place. He could not have paid the penalty that was due to us. He was our representative and he obeyed for us where we have failed to obey. We, we needed one of us to go to that cross. So his humanity uh, allows him to go there on our behalf. It also allows him to sympathize with us, to know by experience what we go through. Remember the big idea, Jesus is fully God and fully man in order for your salvation to be complete. You see, the essence of the Christian message of sin and salvation is, is, is actually about place taking. Think about sin. People think sin is breaking the rules, doing bad things. That's part of it. But ultimately, sin is you taking God's place. It's you putting yourself in the place of God. You didn't create yourself. You don't keep yourself alive. And yet you insist on being your own master, your own king, your own Lord. I do too. That's you taking God's place. You're calling the shots. You're deciding what's best for your life. That's the essence of sin. It leads to breaking of rules, but it also leads to keeping of certain rules for the wrong reason. So, so the Pharisees, they weren't rule breakers. They were sinners. They weren't rule breakers. They were wrongly motivated rule keepers. And, and so what sin is, it's you, you take God's place and you sin when you say, I alone will decide what's right or wrong for my life. And how does God respond? Well, how, how should a king respond to someone who wrongfully usurps the kingdom? He should respond with shock and awe. He should respond with a show of force. He should respond with punishment. And instead, what he does in response to you trying to take God's place in your sin is that God takes your place in a posture of forgiveness. If sin is you taking God's place, salvation is God taking your place. And so God came down in the form of Jesus, God incarnate, God descending, and he emptied himself. And he became what the apostle John says is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God in his love sent his son, Jesus, to do what we could not do for ourselves. This is the heart of the Christian message. His compassion led him to taste the fullness of the human experience. He became lost with the lost. He became hungry with the hungry and thirsty with the thirsty. He journeyed to the far reaches of loneliness so that he could be with the lonely and so that he could rob loneliness of its power. Jesus was questioned many times about this controversial love. People would say to him, look, look who he's talking to. Did you hear who he ate with last night? Is that a prostitute that he's hugging over there? And Jesus would just respond by saying, I know it seems crazy and I know it's hard to understand, but that that's why I'm here. It's to love and it's to forgive and it's to receive. And the message of Jesus today to us is that he loves the likes of you and me that way too. Philip Yancey shared a story one time. And I have my own version. <laughs> my daughter won a goldfish at a festival this summer. And I have somehow become the adoptive caregiving father to this fish. It sits in a vase on our windowsill. You know how much I love animals, but I feed it. I sometimes put a little sprig of a little leaf in there over the side. I change its water once per week. That thing is alive because of me. And you would think, in view of all the energy expended on that little fish's behalf, that my fish would be at least grateful. Not so. Every time my shadow looms above that tank, it dives for cover into the rocks. The only emotion that it has toward me is fear. When I reach in to remove that fish and to change its water, it responds like my only desire in life is to torture that fish, even though my motives are to save it. 
There is no way to convince that fish of my true concern. To, to the fish, I am a deity, and I'm too big for him to understand. My actions are too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy, it sees as cruelty. My attempts at healing, it views as destruction. And the only way to change that fish's perception of me would require a form of incarnation. The only way to convince that fish of my motives would be to become a fish myself and to try to speak to it in a language that it could understand. And a human becoming a fish is nothing compared to God becoming a baby, and yet that's what happened in Bethlehem. Philip Yancey says that the God who created matter took shape within it, as an artist might become a spot on a painting or a playwright, a character within his own play. God wrote a story only using real characters on the pages of real history. And the word became flesh. Praise God for this incredible and life-changing truth. I'm going to ask your host to come now and lead you through a time of reflection, specifically tailored to those of you who have become either too distant or too cozy with Jesus. Prepare your hearts now to respond. Love you guys.